Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Many happy returns to you all. Uh, this past week was Jonah's fast, and this coming week is the last week uh, before we begin uh, the Great Lent. So Great Lent will begin not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow to following Monday. Uh, we read today in the psalm preceding the Gospel, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength are be- and beauty are in His sanctuary. And this psalm emphasizes to us our role and the importance of our role in honoring the Lord. So we'll contemplate together how we can honor the Lord through four means. By obeying His commandments, by respecting His house, by revering His sacrifice, and finally by serving His children. In the Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 21, we read this uh, parable that the Lord gives. But what do you think? A man had two sons And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And the passage continues and says, For John came to you, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So we see here, through this example, that honoring the Lord and obeying his commandments is not about lip service. It's not about what we say, but it's about walking the walk, not just talking the talk. It's about where the rubber meets the road. They actually act and behave and do what's pleasing to my Father? Or do I talk about the commandments of the Lord and I talk a good talk, but when it comes time to actually patterning my life, I can't be bothered to pattern my life according to the way that the Lord instructs me. So what do I use as the standard for what I aspire to? Do I look at God's commandments and say, I aspire to live my life according to this pattern Or do I look at at everyone else in the world and say, I want to be like everybody else. I want to do what everybody else does. I want to live how everybody else lives. I want to behave how everybody else behaves. I want to go to the places that everyone else goes. I want to value the things that everyone else values. Do I spend my time looking at the latest influencers on on TikTok and Instagram and, and all these pictures of the latest fashions and the latest places that they're going and the latest things that they're eating and the latest things that they're driving and the latest things that they're buying and what's the latest makeup trend and what's the latest game that's out there and what's the latest, all of these viral trends that go on. This is how I pattern my life? Or do I look at the commandment of God and say, this is what I ought to be doing. This is what I ought to be seeking. This is what I ought to be desiring to do. It's not just about knowing the commandment of God. Actually, both of the sons knew the commandment of God. And initially, one of them said, you know, I'm not going to do this. But when he evaluated himself, he said, no, I should honor my father 
by doing what's pleasing to my Father. But the passage also gives us some hope that, okay, maybe we've rejected like the first son. We said, you know, I'm not going to do this. But when we come to ourselves, we still have an opportunity to say, you know, no, what my Father commands is right. And even if I'm not convinced, but because I honor my Father and because I love my Father, I'm going to obey His commandments. And beyond that, Christ continues and tells the Pharisees that He was reprimanding. Even when you saw the tax collectors and harlots accepting the preaching of repentance of John, you still did not come to yourselves in turn. So we have many opportunities to come to ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not going to be affiliated with this world, but I'm going to do and obey the commandments of my Father. We can honor the Lord also by respecting His house. We read in John chapter 2, which we read on Jonah's feast, and he, found them in the temp- and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So what we see here is Christ telling the people who were buying and selling and and converting money in the temple, don't make the place of spiritual investment a place of worldly investment. The house of God is somewhere different. It has its honor. It's holy. And as we've said before, the word holy means that it's set aside for a purpose. It's set aside for the purpose of worshiping God. It's not common like every other place. The house of God is a place where we come to make spiritual investments. But the money changers and those that were buying and selling took the place where they ought to have been making spiritual investments and they turned it into a marketplace, a place where they were making worldly investments. So also we do sometimes. You're going to tell me, I wonder, but we don't come and we don't buy and sell and we're not trading and we're not, we're not converting money or doing anything. But let's evaluate ourselves when we're in the house of God. And where is our mind working? Where are we investing our energy and our time and our concentration when we're in the house of the Lord? Are we spending our time and our energy and our concentration planning the rest of our day, planning the rest of our week, thinking about the stock market, thinking about the next task that I ought to do at work, thinking about what I need to do to get ahead in my job? Maybe there's a promotion opportunity and I'm sitting in church thinking about what's the next strategic move that I need to make in order to make myself a viable candidate for this promotion? Am I thinking about my exams and my classes and what do I need to do to be at the top of my class and what do I need to do to uh, impress my, my professors? Am I thinking about my next investment opportunity? Is Bitcoin going up? Is it Bitcoin going down? Is the market going up? Is the market going down? Is it the right time to sell stock and buy gold because it's more stable? Is this what I'm occupying my mind with? Am I investing my time and my energy and my effort in, in worldly investments? Or is my heart and my mind and my attention focused on the sacrament that's being offered? Am I looking at the fact that Christ descended from the glory of heaven and entered into our world and offered Himself on the cross and He's offering me His body and His blood on the altar and saying, come, Eat this. Forget about the cares 
of the world and spend some time with me here in my house, which is the symbol of my presence among you, the place where heaven and earth meet. And for a moment, take out of your mind the worldly things, the earthly things, and think about what it's going to be like in heaven. Think about what it means that the angels stand continuously before me, praising and worshiping. Thinking, think about the images of heaven that you see in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Revelation, where people saw heaven open in front of their eyes. And imagine that this is where you're going. And spend just a few moments out of your week ignoring what's outside of these walls and focusing on heaven and investing your time and your energy there. This is how we can honor the Lord, by respecting His house and respecting the sacraments that are performed and offered in His house. We can honor the Lord also by revering His sacrifice. When you fly into San Antonio, you hear these like recorded announcements in the airport right, from the mayor. And, and one of the things he says is, Welcome to Military City, USA. Right? We have a big military presence here. And so, like veterans are, are very visible in our community. And actually, in American society, we honor the servicemen and veterans. We have Veterans Day. We have Memorial Day. In the U.S. and elsewhere, right, there's the, the monument to the unknown soldier. Right? This is common not only in the U.S., but in many other countries. We honor those people. Why? Because, as we say, they made the ultimate sacrifice, right? They, they gave up their lives in order to protect and defend our freedoms. Well, what about Christ? And Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. Like He descended from heaven, He came to the earth, and He died not to defend our freedom from a worldly enemy who can only have power over us for a time, temporally, but from an eternal enemy, a spiritual enemy, who was oppressing us and would continue to oppress us for eternity and would take our freedom from us for eternity. And so, should we not also honor the sacrifice that He made for us and consider this as something deserving of our reverence? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul tells them, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross without the understanding of what was achieved through the cross is very confusing. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you worship this man who was punished as a criminal and, and slaughtered in the most humiliating way? But when we realize that this was the sacrifice that he made to free us from the oppressor, all of a sudden it makes sense. And we recognize that no, we ought to honor the Lord by showing reverence to the sacrifice that he made. This ties in then to the next point. Oftentimes, when somebody makes such a big sacrifice or somebody is fighting for a cause 
and they, they die either fighting for that cause or they die prematurely, we find out that like foundations are established and, 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 and trusts are built. And in universities, they make like these memorial scholarships to remember the effort and commemorate the memory of the person who was fighting for this cause. And so in order to honor their legacy, we establish these foundations and these institutions and we make scholarships and we, we do fundraising to honor the memory of the one who departed by continuing to pursue and fight for the cause that they fought for and that they loved. So what is the cause that was dear to Christ that he died for? It's our salvation and the salvation of everyone. And so if we want to honor the Lord, as we honor those that depart from this world, we ought to continue to try and strive to achieve the legacy that he came to establish, which is we ought to be fighting for the salvation, not only of our own salvation, but the salvation of all of God's children. In Matthew chapter 25, we read, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Serving God's children is serving Him directly. Bringing His message to the downtrodden, those that are, that are missing Him, is something that we do to honor Him and to honor His memory and to honor His legacy. We also see in 2 Timothy, I thank God when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded also is, is in you also. So we see from this passage that the right and upright faith is transmitted generally, generationally. So in addition to serving God's people, we honor God by transmitting the faith faithfully from the generation before us from whom we received the faith to the generation after us to whom we're accountable to transmit the faith. The faith that we received is a trust. God gave it to us and we received it from the church. And we owe a debt of gratitude to God and to His church that He gave us this faith and that those before us labored and emptied themselves so that we could receive the faith in its fullness. Those fathers, the patriarchs, the, the, the bishops, the clergy that came before us, the Sunday school servants, the parents, the, the older generation that sacrificed so much entirely worked to implant us in the church so that we could receive the faith and know God and have a relationship with Him, do we not owe them and do we not owe God to, transmate, to, to, to transmit as faithfully this faith to the next generation to build the posterity so that they can have life as we received life from the generation before us? This is the way that we honor the Lord, that we take the faith that we received from our fathers and transmit it faithfully to our children and not just our children in the flesh, because those that served us were not only our, our bodily parents, our fleshly parents, but we were served by so many that were related to us and that were not related to us. And so we owe also and we ought also to serve as many as we can to transmit faithfully the faith that we received. So to recap, we ought to honor the Lord. And we can do this by obeying His commandments not just by word, but in action. And even it's more important to obey the commandment by action than by word. We should respect His house as the place where heaven and earth meet and the place 
where we have an opportunity to exclude everything else and focus on him. We revere the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, that he died for our freedom. And so we honor that he died for our freedom and we respect the sacrifice that he made. And we demonstrate this by serving his children and transmitting the faith that we received from the generation before us, before us as a faithful trust that transmit to the generation after us. May God grant us all the strength to honor him in all that we do, and glory be to our God forever. Amen. May, uh... This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart, and we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Many happy returns to you all. Today is both the fourth Sunday of Lent and also the Feast of the Cross. So you'll notice that the church then prepares for us the readings that are for the Feast of the Cross and we celebrate uh, the rites and, and the joyful commemoration of the Feast of the Cross. Before I uh, jump into this uh, into this the sermon, I just want to give us a brief note because sometimes it's nice to understand what the church does. So for those of you that attended um, early from the beginning of Matins, you would have seen that we did a procession around the church that was maybe different from what we're typically accustomed to seeing. It's a procession that we do on three occasions in the church, on the two Feasts of the Cross and on Palm Sunday. And traditionally what we find is that on on festal occasions and solemn occasions, on special days, the rites of the church are preserved and reflect more some of the ancient rites or the, the original rites of the church. So in ancient times, in many of the major centers of Christendom around the world, in, in Constantinople, in Jerusalem, and in Alexandria, they had a practice called stational liturgies. And so the stational liturgy was on, the, uh, on any major commemoration, on the feast of a saint, or on, many, on any major occasion. The liturgy in the city, the, you can say the primary liturgy, or the liturgy that, that most people attended, was at a particular church at a site that's relevant to the commemoration. So if it's the commemoration of a saint, for example, the, the bishop would be praying in the church of the saint, and the commemoration would be done in the church of that saint and all of the people would be praying that saint in that church and leading up to the liturgy there would be a procession through the city that would stop at major centers throughout the city and hymns and it would, would be chanted and readings would be re read at certain stations throughout the city that have some spiritual significance now during times of persecution such a procession through the streets of the city could not be done, but the church preserved this for us by maintaining the procession inside the church. And so we stop at stations inside the church and we read readings that are pertinent to, for example, the saints or the stations that we're at. It's a joyful occasion. The idea is to uplift our spirits and to send our attention towards the Lord and to gain a spiritual message from the places where we pray and from the readings that are associated with those readings. So, for example, we stand in front of the saints and we say, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain 
the whole world and lose his soul, remembering that the saints cast aside everything of the world in order to win their soul. We go to the location of the north gate in the church and we say, enter through the narrow gate. We stand at the location where the baptismal should, should be and we read the reading about the voice of the Lord being over the waters. We go to the, the southern gate of the church and we say, enter into the gate of, of glory. We stand in front of the icon of St. John the Baptist and we say, there are none born from women greater than John the Baptist and so forth. Altogether, there are 12 stations that we pray around. So it's just nice to have an understanding of the origins of the rite of our church. Today we heard a question that maybe many of us uh, in our own minds, in our own contemplations, uh, question our own selves. That is, the people said to Christ, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Sometimes we have this question, like, yes, I have faith, but it would be nice if there was just some more straightforward, plain, cut and dry, like, if, if Jesus could have just, like, if there's a verse in the Bible where Jesus said, like, I am God, right? This would make, make things so much easier for us if it was just plain like this. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. I told you, and you do not believe. So today we're going to contemplate on some of the evidences for our faith in Christ. We'll talk about some of the major questions that people raise to build or to, to, to kind of create doubt or to, to, to cause questions in our mind about the identity of Christ and his divinity. And, and we'll, we'll present some of the responses or the answers to those. So we'll look at the historicity of Jesus. We'll look at both corroborating and adverse witnesses, if there are any. We'll look at Christ's own claims, and we'll introduce the idea of a properly basic belief. So looking at the historicity of Jesus, this is a claim that sometimes people throw around, although you won't find it in like scholarly circles or in academic circles, but sometimes people will throw this, sometimes even just to, to create doubt. Was Jesus even a real historical person? Or how can we know that Jesus was a historical person the New Testament was written after he died. Was this something fabricated that we, people were writing as a legend about Jesus? So how can we evaluate this? Well, we can look at other historical figures. We can look at other historical figures around like the time of, of Christ and how do scholars acknowledge whether these people existed or not. And we can look at some examples from our own time that will help us understand what was going on at that era. So if you take somebody like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is not somebody that people question his existence. People talk about Alexander the Great. I mean, we have a city named after him, right? Alexandria in Egypt. So he's not somebody that, that people question his existence. So let's look at Alexander the Great. His life was from 356 B.C. to 323 B.C. The first existing biography that we have of Alexander the Great is from the first century A.D., so the first existing biography was 400 years, roughly, after his life. That's what we have. And the earliest manuscript of that biography is from the 9th century, so the 800s. Nearly 1,200 years after he died is the first existing manuscript that preserves the biography of, of Alexander the Great. And this is, the original was written in the first century, 400 years after he, depart, he, he died. And the total number of manuscripts that preserve his biography are 123. And we don't question the historicity 
of Alexander the Great. So let's look at the, the, the case for Christ. Christ's life was from around zero, the year zero, to the year 33 A.D. His biography, which is the New Testament, right? The Gospels, and to some extent, the, the, the Epistles, right? Which document what Christ did when he was here. Were written in the latter half of the first century, roughly between 51 A.D. and 90 A.D. So we're looking at a time between 20 to 70 years after his death and his resurrection. The early, earliest existing manuscripts that preserve the writings of the New Testament are from the mid-2nd century. So we're looking at around 150 to 175 A.D. This is for a small fragment of the Gospel of St. John. But it's still only like 120 to 150 years after Christ. And the complete, the oldest existing manuscript of the complete New Testament is from the middle of the 4th century, roughly 350 A.D. So only 320, roughly, years after Christ's resurrection. So when we compare the record of Christ, when it was written, how close to when, when he died that his, his account was written, and how well it's preserved in the record. Not to mention that there are over 25,000 existing manuscripts. I'm not talking about printed versions of, of the Bible. We're talking about handwritten manuscripts on parchment or papyrus, or ancient works. 25,000 existing manuscripts of, of the New Testament. So we have a lot of ways to determine if things were changed, right? Because we have a, a, a large ancient record of, of the writings that we can compare and see what's authentic and what's not authentic. So if we don't question the historicity of Alexander the Great, at least when we look at the existing evidence and how closely it was written after the time Christ died and rose and how well it's preserved and how promptly it was recorded, I think it gives us confidence in the relevance of this record. We can compare it maybe to some contemporary, some contemporary works that we're familiar with. For example, look at Pope Curlus, somebody that many of us are familiar with. We don't doubt his existence. Okay? And many of us are familiar with the book, A Silent Patriarch. Now, it's not the first book about Pope Kyrillus that was written, but certainly it was written based on an extensive study of his life. Pope Kyrillus departed in the year 1971, and the book, The Silent Patriarch, was written in 2019, 48 years later. Why do I use this as an example? Because, okay, we said, like, Christ died around 33, and the whole New Testament was written by the year 90, so about 60 years later, right? So there's, there's a comparable amount of time. If there's something in the book, The Silent Patriarch, that's not accurate about the life of Pope Curlus, there are many people around that would contest, no, this didn't happen. The claims that are made in this book are not an accurate representation of the life of the individual about whom it's supposed to be. And it could be corrected. We can look at another example. St. Habib Girgis, he departed in the year 1951. Uh, His Grace Emba Serapion wrote a, bu- a book about him in 2017, 66 years after. And again, similarly, if there was something there that's not an accurate record of, of the life of the man, there are people who could, could stand and attest and say, 
what's written here is not accurate. This is why it's important to recognize that the whole New Testament was compiled within 60 years after the events about which it's writing. Right? During a time which, if something was not accurate, people would stand up and say, what's written here is not correct. This man Jesus about whom this is written did not do these things. So there was an opportunity for this to happen. But we don't see that. So we might say, okay, we acknowledge that the most rigorous or the, the, the most widely spread uh, record of the life of Christ, the most information that we can get about the life of Christ comes from the New Testament. But some people might say, okay, this was preserved by the Christians. Is there anything else in, in, in a secular record, in a non-religious record, that talks about this man, Christ, so that we can at least say that he exists? Is there something? Right? So we can look at the works of Josephus. His work is, is, is called the Antiquities. One of his works is called Antiquities. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, was a Jewish historian. He was... Uh, he, he was uh, patronized by the Flavians, the emperors of, or the Caesars of, of Rome. They kind of supported his work, and he documented the history of the Jews in his book, The Antiquities. And this was done in, in 93 and 94 AD, roughly. Uh, there's a passage here, and I'm going to acknowledge that this passage from his work, some scholars say there's a lot of editorializing. There are things that were added by the Christians to kind of make the case sound more sensational. But what I've put here, I've taken out things that are opinion, things that are, that are praising, and just left what we might consider would be the bare historical facts that, that generally scholars will acknowledge that there's a kernel of truth in, in what was written, but it was embellished. I've taken out things that people might consider embellishments and just left the kernel that we can say, Probably this is what Josephus wrote. What did he say? Now, there was about this time Jesus. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross, then there's something, and it talks about something that more related to Christianity. And then it said, the tribe of the Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. So here's something written by a Jewish historian that at least documents that Christ was there in this time, in this place, at the time of Pilate, that Pilate condemned him to the cross. And who are his followers? They're the tribes of the Christians, and they're still around until this day. Also in the work of Flavius Josephus, there's a reference to James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. And this statement is something that scholars don't argue about its authenticity. And there's a passage about Herod's execution of John the Baptist. And it's something that, that scholars don't argue about its authenticity. So here we have a, a, a secular work written by a Jewish historian that provides supporting evidence to the biblical narrative on multiple accounts. What else do we have? We look at the work by a man named Publius Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and a politician, a senator. And he wrote also a history called uh, The Annals in AD 116. And in this particular part, he was talking about 
Nero and the burning of Rome, and Nero blaming the burning of Rome on the Christians. Okay, So he says, okay, Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, Christus is, is the Latin form of, of, the, na- of the, the title Christ. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So again, we have a secular record that talks about this man who is the the beginning of this class of people, the Christians. What happened to him? He was crucified by Pontius Pilate. This is what we might expect about, from the perspective of a Roman politician and historian, some rebel uprising that happened in some kind of small center on the on the the outskirts of the Roman Empire. He talks about, okay, the Christians, the ones that are being accused of burning Rome, what's their origin? Their origin is this man, Christ, who's from Judea, and he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. That's what we would expect a senator to write about such a case. But we have here a Jewish historian and a Roman historian pointing to a common fact, at least that there was a man, Christ, in Judea at this time, who was crucified under the hands of Pontius Pilate and from whom this community called the Christians get their identity. So this is strong evidence then for the historicity of Christ. So what about then the idea of adverse witnesses? So is there anything from the time that says, as we said, right, we have a book about Pope Carolus, we have a book about Saint Habib Girgis, is there anything now if, if, if something was written that was wrong or inaccurate in those books, we'd have the opportunity to, to, to write something else, a correction. And in scholarly work, this happens frequently. When somebody writes something, other scholars read it, and they say, wait a minute, this is not accurate. And they, they write rebuttals, or sometimes things are withdrawn. So is there something like this? Did anyone make a case against Christ that's comparably contemporary to the time of the writing of the gospel, something that's as reliable, something that's as ancient? And the simple answer is no. We don't find such a work that was written. The easiest thing to, 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 to counter the message of the New Testament would have been for someone to write an accurate account. The Christians are saying such and such and such and such, but that's not what happened. Actually, this man Christ was a regular man. He died, whatever it was. He didn't perform any wonders. He didn't rise from the dead. Here's his tomb and here's his body. But we don't find any adverse witness from the time of Christ or any time anywhere comparable to the time of the New Testament. Somebody might say, okay, they existed, but they were all destroyed. But we know that there were many heresies that circulated at the time that were not destroyed. We have records of them. Heretical works that the church didn't destroy. They're there. They're preserved. So we would expect to see some witness, some record, but there's nothing. Actually, the only 
kind of, we can say like the best argument about, against the resurrection comes from the New Testament itself. In the Gospel of Matthew, that the Pharisees tell the Roman guards, okay, say that the disciples came and stole the body while you were asleep and we'll make you secure, right? So then the commonly kind of presented argument is that, okay, the disciples came and stole the body and we don't know where it is. But this we have a record of from where? From the New Testament, right? That this is kind of the other counter argument. We notice also the Pharisees in, in their arguments against Christ, they never denied his miracles or the works that he did. They never denied that he healed the paralytic, that he opened the eyes of the blind, that he healed the withered hand of a man, or that he raised the dead, or that he cast out demons. Actually, their argument was, he did this on the Sabbath. And if he was able to do this on the Sabbath, then he must be a sinful man because no good man would do any kind of a work on the Sabbath. That was the argument they presented. Or he casts out demons by, by Beelzebub. So either he's a sinner because he breaks the Sabbath, regardless of what his works are, or he's doing this by the power of demons. But they didn't dispute the fact of his, of his miracles and the miraculous things that he did. So what about Christ himself? What did he say? What did he say? We said at the beginning it would be so easy if he just said, I am God. And then we could just see and point and say, look, Christ said that he was God. So let's look at what he said from the Gospel of John, which we read today. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. I told you I'm the Christ, you didn't believe. This is very clear. What else did he say? In Matthew chapter 27, when he was standing in front of Pilate, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. It is as you say. This is very clear. I am the king of the Jews. What else do we have? In the Gospel according to St. Luke, he read in the, in the synagogue, he read from the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture, which was about the coming of the, the Messiah, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, in Nazareth. And the people were perplexed, and, and they did not like hearing this whatsoever. But clearly, the scripture about the coming of the Messiah is fulfilled today in your hearing. What else? In the Gospel according to St. Mark, and many other places, the, the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And when the people questioned, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He knew what was in their hearts, and he, he doubled down on his position. What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your bed, rise up, and walk. So he didn't hesitate, but rather he reinforced what he was saying. And then finally, we look again at the Gospel of St. John, a word that maybe seems so innocuous. As I am, or in Greek, ego em me. In Hebrew, Yahweh. I am 
This is the covenantal name of God. He identified himself by the name of the covenant by which God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And when, he, when Moses asked, Who shall I say sent me? The Lord said, I am. So when Christ says, Before Abraham, your father, whom you claim descent from, and the one whom you get your justification from, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the covenantal name of the Lord. And the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? Because they knew what he was saying. They knew what he was claiming. And for them, it was blasphemy. And then finally, we look at the idea of a properly basic belief. How else can I justify my faith in Christ? Your belief in Christ on your personal experience with Christ. When we build a relationship and we know Him and we internalize this belief, then we don't need external evidence. It's like somebody telling you that your parents don't exist. A recent apologist says in his book, The Weight of Glory, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When I look at the world through the lens of Christianity, through the message of Christ, and I see that everything makes sense according to this message, and I have a relationship with the one who gave this message, then no matter what others say, no matter who comes to me and says, this man doesn't exist, okay, you may doubt, you may believe, but I experienced him, and I see everything clearly through him and through his teaching. And so there's no doubt left in my mind. So to recap, the evidence for Jesus' historicity is compelling. There are non-Christian corroborating witnesses that exist, and there's no comparably reliable adverse witness that exists to counter the claims of the New Testament. Christ himself claimed to be God in many ways through forgiving sins and through his statements adopting the covenantal name of God and on many other occasions. And our faith is founded, perhaps most importantly, on our personal experience with him and relationship with him. And as such, it's a properly basic belief. And glory be to our God forever. Amen. For greatly this talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.